Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In January, I was reading a catalog of books that were soon to be published, and one caught my eye. It was called Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Human Life by a statistician and health economist at Columbia University named Howard Stephen Friedman. Friedman has been working on this question for years, and then all of a sudden, while his book was in production, a pandemic hit. People are talking today about how human lives have a trade-off potentially with the economy and you know how do we adjust for that? And I don't like to think of it as a direct trade-off, but the reality is this is the exact type of calculation that regulatory agencies do as part of their basic work. It is their cost-benefit analysis. Asking how much a life is worth might seem crass, but as Friedman suggests, it's being calculated every day in all sorts of places, in insurance companies, government offices, courts, the healthcare industry. In the real world, healthcare is rationed every single day. Why is it rationed? Because no health system, no matter what country you are, could provide every patient any possible care they want at any time. Right? That would simply bankrupt the system. And the truth is, it probably would be a horrendous use of money and time. Not every treatment should be applied or needs to be applied. So what treatments do get used and who gets them? Friedman says it's important to lift the veil on these sorts of discussions, discussions that often happen in hushed tones and in back rooms. So what we're seeing now is really focusing people's attention on things that are happening all the time. Interestingly, America does not calculate the value of human life in the way that many other industrialized countries do, which we'll get to. But first, Friedman says, it's useful to think about how arbitrary our calculation of a life can be, how much it can depend on the fame or the media exposure that a person or an issue gets. And he points to a few examples. The first one involves a little girl named Jessica. All America is watching and waiting tonight, watching the little town of Midland, Texas, and waiting for rescuers to free little Jessica McClure. The 18-month-old... In October of 1987, McClure was at her aunt's house when she fell into a well. She was a year and a half old, and local authorities tried desperately to get her out. At various points today, Jessica was singing nursery songs, but mostly the little girl has been crying for her mother. With daylight fading, rescuers are stepping up their efforts to free the child. It's a story that has captured the hearts of many Americans, and we'll have a live report from Midland, Texas, later on in our program this evening. If you hear about a person, you know about their life, you will tend to care about them more and, and be willing to invest more, whether that's time or money, than in the statistics. And America was willing to invest a lot in Jessica McClure. CNN, an all-news TV network that had started just a few years before in 1980, they provided extensive coverage of the baby Jessica story. President Reagan said, we all felt like she was part of our family. Lots of donations were sent in, and about three quarters of a million dollars was put in a trust fund for McClure. If you look at it from the calculation point of view, the tremendous amount of money that was raised to save baby Jessica, none of it was needed, by the way, could have been allocated to save many other people in other countries, or even perhaps in the United States. But people weren't aware of it. Officials in Midland drilled a tunnel to reach Jessica McClure and took her out of the well about two days after she fell in. 
Few people, of course, would say that her life was worth more than the lives of children in all other sorts of horrific circumstances, lives that got a lot less attention, but publicity matters. And in the end, it can change how we calculate the value of life. In fact, it was an event that got a tremendous amount of attention that prompted Howard Friedman to start thinking about the price tags we put on people, which was not something that, as a statistician, he had thought deeply about before. And it was really only after that, the moment, and then the compensation fund itself that started really triggering for me that insight about how these dollar figures are applied and then thinking about the ubiquity of it. So really, that was the, that was the light bulb over the head moment for me. The compensation fund in question here, not surprisingly, was for September 11th victims, and it was headed up by a man named Kenneth Feinberg, who was given what can only be described as an impossible job. Give out money to victims' families, do it proportionally, and do it fairly. Well, the notion that you can put a price tag on someone's life seems crazy. But like I said, it's done all the time. So Feinberg got to work. He was told he must take economic considerations into account. Now, what he did was created a formula. He inserted some of his own uh, philosophy into it. He put a minimum value of life, meaning that the families of those who died would have to get paid something. If we get a chance, I'd love to talk later about the fact that in civil court, there is no minimum. So he asserted a minimum value, $250,000. He also put a cap. He said, no matter what you were earning, I'm going to put an assumed maximum cap of what your salary is. So that while the bottom number, 250000 existed, he said he doesn't want people or families to get payouts of $100 million because perhaps the victim was earning many million millions per year. And by doing this, he ended up with a range. The range was from 250000 to over $7 million to the families of those who died, and about $8 million, the highest payout, was to someone who was still alive. Now that 30x range between the lowest and highest value, for many felt very unfair. And Kenneth Feinberg himself said if he had the flexibility and opportunity to do it over again, he would value all lives the same, that it would be easier to administer, huh. and that it would be more accepted by the public. Now, let me just ask the sort of the other side of this. I mean, if you've got a situation where somebody has a mortgage of $5,000 a month and somebody has a mortgage of $500 a month, and you're trying to replace the income of the lost person who was helping them, let's say, to pay that mortgage, is it right to give everybody the same amount of money if some people's expenses are incredibly high based on the life that they had had, based on the income that they had had? And other people, you know, w you know, with a certain payout would do with, with, with a much lower payout would still be able to live their lives in a very in a, in a pretty comfortable way. And you raise a very deep question, which is, what is the purpose of that payout? Is it really meant to be a replacement of lost income, which is something you see, for example, in life insurance sometimes? Or was it meant to reflect the value simply of the loss of the human being itself, not specifically tied to economics? And there are different approaches to this. You know, if we take the Kenneth Feinberg story and pull it just a little further in time, after the Boston Marathon bombing, which, uh, you know, of course, you're 
very familiar with, they did have a victim's fund that was created. Now, that fund was not government money. It was private money. The same Kenneth Feinberg was in charge of dispensing that money. And in that particular case, he did distribute to the families of those who died an equal amount. It was, in that case, it was over $2 million. So he, he w did get the opportunity to do that equality. Now, in different situations of valuing human life, income often does play a role, but in many it doesn't. And interestingly, our federal regulatory system, whether it's the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration, or some of the other regulators, they have a cost-benefit calculation that they do in which all lives are valued equally, rich or poor, old or young, regardless of who you are. Hmm. Let me just ask you a little bit about the situation that we see ourselves in right now with COVID-19 and coronavirus. There's been talk, not just here, all around the world, uh, about this question of like how government should respond. The question of, okay, when do you end social distancing? And, and different countries have had to answer this for themselves or, or haven't yet uh, in different ways. And it often... Uh, involves sort of lives lost versus lives diminished, like the small business owner who can't feed or house their kids properly. How in the world do you think about those questions, which in some ways, those are the kinds of questions you think about? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. And, and cross-country analysis is actually a great way to at least get some insight. Uh, you know, if you look in this particular case, you see many of the Asian countries who got far ahead in terms of the process of testing, tracing, and quarantining. And as a result, have not, in many countries, have had to shut the entire, entire country down. Uh, and many of them are past their peak. Uh, other countries have gone to full lockdowns and with corresponding impacts, impacts on people's economic well-being, on their mental health, and in other situations. So there is this different approaches. But if we step back to the deeper question, which is this trade-off and how that's thought about, it does bring us back to how the regulatory agencies do it. Because they have a formal process for doing cost-benefit analysis. And what it does is it lines up what are the assumed costs, whether, you know, for example, let's say we're talking about the cost of, for now, reducing arsenic in the water, right? So you want to explore this regulation. There are additional costs associated with reducing the arsenic in the water, and there are benefits, benefits related to people's health, so morbidity, as well as mortality. And the lives that are saved are monetized, so they're converted to dollar figures. The U.S. federal government assigns a number of about $10 million per life saved, and they balance this in this equation. But I want to step aside from that for a second and talk a little bit about what we know about the regulatory system itself, because it's highly relevant. So the first thing is, in the Bush Jr. administration, the Environmental Protection Agency tried actually introducing the idea of two values of life, one value for people below uh, a certain age and a lower value for older people. Okay. It was true. Was uh, the idea being that like older people have fewer years of life ahead, but a, a five-year-old has many years of life ahead, presumably? Well, that was the justification that they okay. had made. So you're summarizing okay. perfectly. The public reacted strongly. It was termed the senior death discount, and that was not a positive right. phrase. Mm. And, Doesn't sound like it. And the, the public pushed back on it. They said this is not acceptable to value people's lives differently based on their age. What is interesting about it is the public has 
power, especially in situations where while there's a lot of equations, my principle is you can understand the equations and if it feels unjust, push back. And so the public pushed back. The EPA backed off on that particular proposed policy, that senior debt discounts. And now to this day, not just the EPA, but every regulator values all lives the same, regardless of age, regardless of the amount of disabilities or comorbidities. But it's also worth touching base on one other interesting aspect, which is the Affordable Care Act specifically has a provision written in that Medicare cannot make health resource utilization decisions based on age, comorbidity, or life expectancy. So there's the government has made a very strong, substantial point. Of course, much of the healthcare system in the United States is not the public sector. It's very much sitting in the private sector. And let me ask you about the question of age. Do all countries, do most countries tend to value all lives the same? You know, if you're if you've got one ventilator, I, I mean, I know this doesn't come up that much, but, you know, and you have a 10 year old and a 90 year old. Do you do you just so, say, you know, it just depends on who came in first or, or, or that kind of thing? <laughs> no, you, you make a really great point. There are many countries, especially ones who have very strong public health systems. They have uh, often boards that are called health technology assessment boards. They decide, mm -hmm. do, am I going to approve a drug? Am I going to approve a procedure? Right. And usually there's a threshold involved. That threshold is often driven by, it could be an incremental number of life years saved per dollar spent or quality adjusted life years saved per dollar spent. And you probably heard me throw in the phrase life year. By doing that, many countries already start with a predisposition towards wanting to allocate more resources to younger than older. But if there's, okay. you know, if there's not a single rule and it's not perfectly consistent. But these, again, because these are branches of governments, the public in those countries can voice their opinion. They could try to push back on that if they felt that this was unjust or inappropriate. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Howard Friedman. He's the author of Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. Um, let's talk about some of those really hard decisions from that are made all the time, even outside of this moment of coronavirus, by people in government, for example, like how much air pollution is okay, um, you know, how much of different chemicals can go into water. Uh, can you just sketch out for me how we make those kinds of decisions, how we, I mean, our government makes those kinds of decisions. Um, I'd be happy to. So if you think about it, uh, what you want to see happen is a thoughtful process, a thoughtful process which starts with exploring what are the potential scenarios. Uh, let's take that example you had of the amount of pollution that is perhaps being spewed from uh, a coal factory. Right. So we have a certain amount of pollution that is coming out and, and a certain amount is tolerated today. And let's say that the Environmental Protection Agency is exploring uh, a few different regulations in which they make the safety standards higher. That is, they say you need to have less pollution. So they have a few scenarios that they're exploring. They want to understand what are the costs associated with making whether it's the chimney sweepers uh, more effective or whatever else has to be done so that the factory exhaust is cleaner. Right. That's on the cost side. On the benefit side would be the reduced morbidity and mortality. So the respiratory related 
infections and the corresponding diseases and, and maybe the other factors that are related to the pollutants that come out. So they well, you could imagine the- you can imagine I think about lead like in the water, you can imagine a situation which, you know, kids brains are affected. And so you have to think about like an entire lifetime of earnings that could be reduced by the fact that their brains are being hurt by what's in the water. Absolutely. So, I mean, that that's a great example as well. And one thing that you brought up in that example, which are very subtle, is the costs associated with perhaps improving the water quality or in my previous example about reducing the amount of uh, particles that are coming out of a factory is those costs might be incurred in the first few years. The benefits may stretch out for decades. Tell me a little bit about lawsuits, which you've alluded to, and how they value lives and how things like you know, race and gender can play into the value that is put on a human life in a lawsuit? So in the civil court system, uh, first we have to recognize that every state has its own laws, and so it influences it dramatically. What we do see, though, is there's a lot of factors that play into it. Certainly, the amount of media attention will play a substantial role. Income plays a role, and this is exactly what, going back originally to that September 11th conversation, what influenced Kenneth Feinberg to have to have that huge range in the payouts. If you take a very famous case that happened in New York, which was about Cheryl Thurston, this was a woman who was in need of care. She was in a full-time care facility. She was left alone when taking a bath, saying that she was not supposed to, to be done. She was supposed to always be monitored. She slipped into a coma, died within 24 hours. Her sister sued. The judgment was that, yes, the care facility was negligent, but the judgment was for zero dollars. And it was for zero dollars, as the judge said, because New York state law did not have an intrinsic value of human life. And the sister was costing money. She wasn't earning money and had never suffered because she never had woken up. The judge was so dramatically moved by that that she said that had the sister been chattel, like a, like a cow or a chicken, then payment would have been made. Now, take that and contrast it with, for example, the famous O.J. Simpson trial. The civil trial ended with a judgment of over $30 million for the loss of two lives. California law is different, high-profile case, and also in California law, the judgment is also related to the earnings of the individual. Wealthier people, if they're judge guilty, are expected to pay much more. So if I bring it back to COVID-19 and this world we're living in now, has the incredible amount of attention on deaths and, you know, calculations of deaths, which, you know, normally are not the stuff of everyday media coverage, but are now, has it made you think differently at all about um, how much a life is valued and whether we're going about things in the right or wrong way? I mean, for from my own perspective, I, I do wish we would have learned earlier from other countries. I, I, I wish there were, you know, if we could go back a few months in time, I wish we would have done different things in terms of policies. In terms of how we value human life, I think it's bringing to the forefront a lot of the issues, a lot of the inequalities. And, you know, go back a month in time. A month in time, we were hearing about celebrities who were tested positive, sports stars, now we're doing mass testing, but the first first pass was very much about those who were of privilege. And this is going to continue the trajectory away because what we're seeing more and more now is those who are 
at most risk with COVID, medically and economically, are again those least privileged. So I like to be an, an optimist in life. My optimist tells me, hopefully we learn a deeper lesson that we are all in this together, that your health impacts my health. I hope that. I'm not sure that's what America will learn. I think other countries may learn that more deeply. I know the countries who have suffered through very dramatic infections in the past, many of them internalize that lesson. I'm not sure America will internalize it. Howard Friedman is a health economist and a statistician at Columbia University. He's the author of the book, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. Howard, thank you so much for, for being here and taking the time. Thank you, it was an honor. If you want to learn more about how Kenneth Feinberg, who we talked about before, how he worked to compensate victims after 9-11 and what he learned, Feinberg did a This I Believe audio essay for NPR's Weekend Edition. You can find a link to that piece and more at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.